listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. Hello. Hello. Indeed. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast. Another excellent week we had uh, kicked things off with Food Interlude. Uh, Larissa, oh, Larissa, I've got to get the last night. Larissa. Debetsky was in, as it turns out, we've been saying her last name incorrect for about a year. Um, we finally got it right. And she also came in to talk to us about Jaffles and the wonderful world of Jaffles. And Triple R listeners really, really love Jaffles, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we also had a bit of a chat about underage drinking. Not We're not in favour of it, just the terrible just memories. Just silly it is. I was when I was underage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, also, we got to chat to um, Jim Morton, the man behind the smash hit comedy podcast uh, my dad wrote a porno uh, and also I had a bit of a chat about my drive to Venice Bay and how, <laughs> how great that was <laughs> uh, and the redoubtable Stephen Main came in went to town on uh, the state of pokies reform in Australia very interesting man and subject and uh, Dr Gail Isles former astronaut trainer uh, came in to talk about an event at ScienceWorks uh, commemorating the moon landing 50 years ago. You'll never believe what's on the moon. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. <laughs> what is <laughs> Are you just showing me pictures of Tiger Place? <laughs> is that what that is? It's photos of um, Tiger players holding children. Oh, God. <laughs> the things that you do. Because in... it's so cute. It's like sure. it's yeah, made to make my heart pop. Okay. Well, just rugged men yep. holding babies. We all need an, a psychological balm. Mm. Thank you. Mine's yeah. Justin Martin holding a <laughs> baby. <laughs> Is that what you do to relax? Just look at, you know, look up Richmond players holding babies? Yeah, how, do you, yeah. how do you find that? Do you Google? What do you... Well, I don't know. They're just on my Facebook today. It just pops up. Yeah. Um, I had a the t- one of those weekends where I just went. Yes, I needed that. You know, oh, I just, it's yeah. been so. You know, I'm getting back into like. You know, I've had a few other things on. I think if I have one other thing on in my life, I go. Oh, busy, <laughs> so busy. <laughs> oh, I had to go to a meeting today. Oh, I had a. Oh, that's a. I've had a lot on. You've had a lot on though, like a lot. Or do you think? So? Yeah, you, you had an engagement, you had a surprise oh, yeah, for you. Sorry, yeah, that. You're filming a TV show and you've been doing some sets in between right. as well. And the show. That's I a forgot, lot. I forgot about the <laughs> engagement. Oh, my God, you're going to start crying again. <laughs> no, 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 I'm fine. I was, it was the birthday. I was like, the, why was I? I am just was looking at my diary just thinking, what did you have on? Like, there's nothing written down here. It's all you filming this TV show. But that was only, oh. And then I, yeah, I go back to, oh, yeah, you got engaged. And um, just a bit <laughs> <coughs> had that big 40th that was, you know, the event. Um so obviously last weekend was a very a lot of emotional highs mm. and then during the week just kind of busy at work doing things and then so by the weekend it was like, oh, okay, you need to just relax, not talk to anyone. So Friday we I was filming all day and we finished, we wrapped it about 7.30 at night, something like that. Um, and then I had nothing on that night and Kath was down at Venus Bay but I was like, oh, no, this is... Perfect. I get to go home and not talk to anybody oh, yeah. or do anything. And so I got home and I poured myself a nice big glass of whiskey. Oh, oh. Dream. Yeah. And I just. Did you get a pie out of the freezer? Nah, didn't need to because at the One end. One pie, Hickey. <laughs> yeah. I had it the other night. Um, no more pies left in the frozen now. But it was, uh, and because at the end of the, uh, the filming, they um, they bought us all pizza and they went, all right, pizza and beer for you. So I had a beer and, and pizza. So oh. I had my dinner sorted and then so got home and, yeah, had a glass of whiskey, poured myself a, um, poured a bath. <laughs> That's right. Whiskey? Yeah. No. Yep. I bathed in whiskey. <laughs> no. I just I ran a bath and just you know and oh. got the laptop in. in what? The, what? Yeah. <laughs> Not in the bath. Well, no, outside of the bath, uh. but obviously got to watch watch TV. You know, while I was in the bath drinking whiskey. I'm like, this is. This is the really great life. That's the dream. Yeah, and then because I would have got, you cover up the camera with a bit of tape. Yeah. 
Oh, no. Oh, really? Have a look. Who oh. cares? <laughs> what? It's a big fear of mine. Is it? Yeah, and then I watched a black... What's it called again? Black oh, Black um, Mirror. I shouldn't black, watch Black Mirror. Yeah. It's bad for my brain. Oh, did, did they do that yeah. in that episode? Yeah, it's about someone have... taking over the camera. It's not good. Oh, well... If someone wants to have a look at me having a bath, well, (laughs) thank you. (laughs) What a joy. No one looks good in a bath. Anyway, um, you know, you look down. Oh, Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, because I would have gone down to Venus Bay on the the Friday night, but I um, had this gig on the Saturday afternoon. and and it was like, oh, this is an early gig, so it finishes at seven. So I was like, that gives me – I still – I could drive to Venus Bay that night mm. and still, you know, get there at not too late and have a nice day on Sunday. But, oh, I tell you what, that drive down – I know we were talking about this earlier, but – and also somehow forgot to read a map properly or just follow instructions mm. – like the amount of times that I would miss a turn off for some reason. Like mm. I'd just be driving, it'd be a night time and I'm looking at the map and I'm like going, yeah, I know I need to take this turn off. I know I need to take this turn off. Oh, there's a turn off there. And then I just keep on going. The amount of swearing that I did to myself in that car. <laughs> what, what were you doing? I don't know. I just went, oh, no, there's a turn off, but I don't want, oh, no, I am in the wrong lane. Yeah. Like I just, oh, jeez. I thought that the both lanes were, get, were able to turn off oh. and then, there was a turn off and I'm like, oh, I don't need – no, I do need that. <laughs> you like, know, just, you know, you have those times yeah. when you just like – you look at it and go, I need to be there but mm, look I'm where not I am doing now. it. One mm. of my perverse joys is missing a turn off but you're alone so you don't have to have a conversation about that was the turn off oh. and uh, take the next one don't and loop you, around. Yeah. You don't have a break like a breakdown about it? Uh, in my own head I can be tearing myself apart oh. but as, if, there's, if I'm on my own it's like, oh – I'm not getting abused for it. Oh, I'm not I, getting. Oh, I abused myself. <laughs> I was so just annoyed. Just both of your lives. No, no, <laughs> not that anyone would ordinarily abuse me, but just making mistakes on your own. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah like, I oh, do know well. what you mean. But you know what I did? Like, it's, I missed this turn off, and I was like, "Oh, it'll be fine. And I'll just go further down or something." And then, you know, because the map re- reroutes itself, and then, um, and then. And then the next one was like I had to go around, take this, and I missed another turn oh, off. God. What's going on? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I should take the decision to drive to Venus Bay on a oh, Saturday night was a bad one. Oh, mate, it was oh. so – I missed like, – and then there was the, the next one was like I, having to like turn off, you know. I'm, I'm like I can't be turning off on a – like going right on a, on a freeway. Oh. And I was like that's too – I don't want to do that. Just – Send me in this direction and can't we just go around the long way? I don't, but also I don't want to go – I just don't want to do a U-bolt on a freeway. No, like, which is essentially what you're meant to do that. Yeah, no, you're not. But there was turn-offs. Even turn those gaps and you wonder whether they're made to yeah. do them. Yeah. But it was like this turn, and I was just like, "No, I'm not going. I'm not going that way." Anyway, I end up driving to some some small town, and of course, that's when Kath calls. There's me. a guy with a banjo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, she calls me, and she's you know, says, "Hey, you know, how far away?" Because she was at some mate's place in in Venus Bay. Um, you know, she's like, "Just yeah, if you get here early enough, come come to Devon Pete's and we'll have a drink." And I was like, oh, I had to get on the phone. I'm like, I don't know where I am. <laughs> I've missed so many turn-offs. Just crying, just going, I can't talk to anybody. I just need – I'm not going to be there until – I've missed so many turn-offs. <laughs> just, it was so ridiculous. And then, do you know there's what? This is uh. so naughty, but there was one where – and it was one of the last turn of, turns I had to... I think my map was, like, slightly out of sync. Do you think at the no, end... Why were there so many turns? Yeah. <laughs> I just... Every time I had to turn, I just I just wanted to go straight. Mm. I just didn't want to turn. I just wanted to drive straight and get there, you know. Um, but there was one where I just... I, I stopped and reversed. Oh like, God, I just went... Jim. I can't... But this is like, you know, there was no one around. It was like it wasn't on the freeway or anything. It was just on the on a road and I just I stopped and reversed and I went anyway. <laughs> that was the best decision that I made that night. Getting, it was. <laughs> I can't like I reckon I missed about five turns and the amount of swearing that I did to myself in that car. Sounds oh. like you should have just stayed home and defrosted a pie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> 
I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Back in the food in the studio for Food Interlude <laughs> is food writer, sybarite and professional eater Larissa Dubetsky. Larissa, hello. 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 What's uh, arousing your senses this week? I was going to go all serious and try and talk about, you know, gender inequality and hospitality <laughs> kitchens. No, no, yes. no, damn it, I'm cold. It's winter. I want to talk about jaffles. <laughs> yes, so please. Let's take the low road. <laughs> It's our favourite road. Yeah. <laughs> well, who doesn't love a jaffle, right? Love a jaffle. Oh, yeah. yeah. What is a jaffle? Well, a jaffle is a like a it's a it's a toasted sandwich, but it's essentially enclosed. A, enclosed. Mm. And I was talking to my friend about it yesterday, who said, "You know, it's essentially a toast pie, which is true. So all of the edges are cream, oh. forming the shape of a pie, and so the filling becomes the pie filling. And the basically with the, you know, we call it a jaffle, but essentially it's a breville. Um, not to infringe their trademark or anything and so they crimp it and then they create those two the diagonal across yes. it so you wind up with those two gorgeous triangles and inside you can basically heat anything to the you know the, the temperature of the nuclear reactor at Chernobyl when it exploded so mm, it's yes, very dangerous. Exactly. Now this is a question I want to ask to be technical about it do the sides have to be closed like they are say in a breville because I've got a friend who has a press they call it a sandwich press and it just presses two bits of bread together and makes them hot but they don't kind of they don't seal in yeah, the way that That's an excellent question, Sarah. Thank that you. is not a jaffle. That is oh, a toasted sandwich. Yeah. Yes, a pale facsimile of the jaffle. <laughs> yes. There you go. And, and a downside. A toast pie, Yeah, though. it's amazing. A toast pie, yeah. The, the downside would be the less filling, isn't it? Isn't that just physics? Because you, oh. you're getting the edge Technical. of the... <laughs> but you're getting the end of the bread... That they have to meet and therefore... Yes. The, yeah. Yes. So no. what is the point of a jaffle? The point of a jaffle is it bloody yum. Oh, right, okay. So I just have beautiful memories of jaffles. My school canteen in winter used to crack out the spaghetti jaffle, which was tin spaghetti. Yes. That, you know, those craft single slices that are individually yes. wrapped. So they're environmentally terrible. But And so in winter, and I went to a really impoverished yet high-achieving girls' school in South Melbourne, and in winter we'd go with our chill-blind fingers and order one of these jaffles... And it's like in the Depression, my nanny used to tell me about taking a baked potato to school and um, it'd be in your pockets all day until oh. lunchtime and you'd warm your hands on the baked potato. It was the same with our jaffles. Oh, wow. Because you can't eat them for about half an hour because they're so hot. You know, they just <laughs> scald the roof off your mouth. Mm. Particularly the spaghetti. That was oh. The spaghetti bomb was could be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. So dangerous. Did you, we had them at home like, and yeah. ours was uh, we cooked on the stove top. Yeah. Oh. Did you know that original? That would have been one of the original Jaffa lines invented by an Australian, 1949, really? patented by a Bondi doctor. Huh. Yeah. There you go. And he called it a Jaffa. That was his his word for it. Because really? that's where the name yeah. came from. And they then. think he got it off those so Belgian did... waffle irons. You know how they make yes. yeah, you turn them over oh. on a on a direct flame. Yes. And they think that this guy was like, so I'm gonna. Where make did a Breville come from? Or is that? Oh, well, Breville was – okay, so that's an Australian company. And in 1974, the son of the original Breville um, founder mm. said, hey, Dad, wouldn't this be a brilliant idea? Yeah. And that's when they came up with that patent for the, you know, the, what we know as a jaffle today with the diagonal thing. That was their stroke of genius that they added to the whole jaffle debacle. Okay. So they came up with the, the thing where you wind up with two distinct triangles. Yeah. Did jaffles travel or is it a, an Australian oh. thing? Apparently, the Breville Jaffa makers sold around the world now. Okay. And they say around 6 million people own one. Right, but, but they don't call, necessarily call them Jaffles. I don't know. In the, in the Americans, they call them pie irons, <laughs> for example. Oh, God. Way to um, ruin so it. So everyone has different nomenclature for it. No, I like pie yeah. irons. <laughs> I think I like anything with pie, pie irons. <laughs> yeah. So a Jaffles exactly. making a comeback. I mean, I feel like they've never gone away. I can still remember. Yeah. I'm sure St. Jerome's used to do a long neck and a Jaffle. <gasps> yeah. Years and years and years ago. Did perfect drinking food, isn't it? Perfect drinking hand, food. Because it's one-handed as well. One hand's got your jaffle, the other hand's got your beer. It's just happy days. It's so mm. perfect. But restaurants are starting to do jaffles Ooh. now. So they're, they're popping up in proper restaurants sort of on their sort of appetizers menu. Or like, you know, you eat a jaffle, your appetite's pretty much dead, right? Mm. But, um, you know, a lot of... Um, places like so there's this place i really like called superling in carlton and they specialize in hunanese chinese cuisine um but they do this cracker mapo tofu jaffle with sort of sichuan 
chilli dust on it. So oh, don't wear white when you order yeah, one of right. them. You're just going to end up covered. It's, yeah. But it's, you know, it's worth the laundering bills. And, and I, I suppose this is another benefit of a jaffle. Because it's enclosed, you can put more loose ingredients inside. Like, you know, there are mac and cheese jaffles in Melbourne, whereas you couldn't have a mac and cheese sandwich. Exactly. Mm. I like the way you're thinking very technically. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting a real insight into Daniel's brain. Bringing his scientific mind to the <laughs> Uh, and are there amazing jaffles in Melbourne? I think so. There's one cafe called Bad Frankie's that's actually dedicated to the jaffles. So that they, they do gin and jaffles. And they even do a lamington jaffle. So it's like, you know, sticking coconut sponge slices oh. with all of the traditional fillings through the jaffle press. It's really good. Oh, that is delicious. Yeah. I'm trying do to you- think what's something that doesn't go in a jaffle. Can't think of anything, None. can you? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Vegemite's good in a jaffle. Uh, what? Because it goes all hot and weird. Yeah. Does it go, what happens there, to it when it's heated? I don't Does know, it turn lava-like? It, yeah, it, it, well, I only ever had it once. My sister made it and I just felt like it kind of went ru- runny. Yeah. Like okay. a little bit runny. All right, Vegemite, put it on the list. Do you think yeah. that they're, Do you think the jaffles are allowed to be? You've just talked about a really fancy jaffle. Do you think they're allowed to be fancy? Is that okay? I think it's fine. For there to be a sliding scale? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen various other ones at bars and restaurants around town. So Wagyu Bolognese is very popular at the moment and especially if you stick some kimchi in there as well just to really spark it up with the pickle. Delicious. Oh, yum. And you can base a whole business on jaffles, can't you? I mean, I'm thinking of Union Kiosk. That's right, Mm. yes, exactly. Which uh, is on, what, Little Collins and in the Causeway building and it it has the most... uh, it's cost the most per square metre of real estate in the city, I think, apart from the Telstra building. And so, they're just selling oh, jaffles. And they just do jaffles. Really? Just to jaffles. That's mm. pretty cool. many yeah. jaffles. It's $73,000 a square metre. You need a lot of rebels jaffles. for that. <laughs> well, it's, there's, on, on the there's only room for two of them in there. The, the only way to get inside is to jump the – or to open the front counter. <sighs> Hilarious. Someone's just messaged to say that cooking eggs in a jaffle is a cheap, easy bogan way to French toast them all about. <laughs> <laughs> it truly There's is. There's nothing bogan about nah. that. Don't put yourself down. So, so do, you, do you think jaffles will phase out? Never. Other, oh, right. Never. They're in. I think they're back. They're, they've got that nostalgia factor as well. And I, my, my um, jaffle maker's nearly dead, so I actually went looking for one online yesterday, and Breville is selling them hard with the nostalgia factor. So you know how you guys right. were talking before about Maggie Beer, you know, yeah, saying that yeah. the elderly people in nursing homes, that they're missing that nostalgia factor. What they need to do is put a couple of jaffle makers <gasps> in each nursing home. That smell, you know, oh, that yeah. enveloping... Mm. Tasty yeah. smell with Ooh, butter. One now. That's what you need. And Breville is selling it as the original '74. So you know, it's they're going hard on people of my generation. I'm a kid of the '70s, so um, and what, I'm a sucker for that. Yeah, same. What What's your favourite topping? Oh, I'm a pretty simple gal. I just so well uh, back to the spaghetti, tin spaghetti. It's yes. the only time I can go near the stuff. Huh. Um, delicious. Yes. I won't do baked beans. Something. Uh, yeah. Nah, gross. But I just like a nice cheese tomato. Really good tomatoes, though. It has to be great tomatoes and yep. a good quality cheddar, tasty cheese. How do you feel about mm, the bread, though? Some people believe it has to just be white, fluffy. Yes. Che- oh. Hi, GI, that, that awful packet sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's got a shelf life of about 20 years. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it has to be that. And it has to be lots and lots of butter on the outside. Oh, yeah. I, I just can't Nothing be on the inside. With- no. No butter on the inside, butter just on yeah. the outside. I can't be friends with anyone who doesn't put butter on the outside of a jaffle and finish with the sprinkles. We're good oh, oh my God, right. we're high-fiving. So Larissa's uh, <laughs> slumming it. Jaffles is your outlet for slumming it, basically, it seems. Uh, one of them. One of them. Can I just tell you, too, you've obviously struck a call because we've got so many messages of everyone <laughs> like, they, just sharing their Jaffle Iron stories. It's extraordinary. Awesome. We'll be keeping tabs on them all yeah. morning. Uh, Larissa Drabetsky, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, guys. Three Triple R. Australia's gambling culture sees us wager and lose more than any other country on earth. We have more pokies per head of population than anywhere else. And more than half of the $24 billion a year lost on gambling is poured into poker machines across the country. To tell us about the state of play in the pokies industry, we're joined by Walkley award-winning journalist, Crikey founder and shareholder activist Stephen Main. Stephen, welcome to Breakfasters. Great to be here. Uh, Earlier this month, uh, Woolworths, the third biggest Australian poker machine operator behind the casino's Crown and Star, announced they're pulling their pokies. That came after Coles ditched theirs. 
Collingwood, Geelong and Melbourne footy clubs are in the process of phasing theirs out. For you, is it job done, problem solved, you can go home now? <laughs> oh, look, if, if, if only it was that, that easy. Um, because, I mean, the losses are still going up. So that's the great tra- tragedy here at, at $24 billion, you know, $1,000 um, for every person in Australia lost on gambling. So from a divestment campaign point of view, it's going well in that credible institutions are no longer choosing to be associated with, with a damaging and addictive poker machines. So Coles are out. Collingwood are out. Melbourne Footy Club will be out in August 2022. Geelong and the Western Bulldogs are committed to being out. The RSL in Victoria is under enormous pressure from younger veterans to get out uh, and Woolworths have announced a demerger, which is sort of a Clayton's getting out because they're still going to own 15%, but they're basically saying we're so embarrassed by this incredibly damaging business. And it's amazing how they lie about the size of it. I mean, the line you just used in the introduction about the fact that they're the third biggest, they use that line to say they're, they're smaller than Crown and the Star. But they're actually, in poker machine terms, they're actually the biggest. And they actually own more poker machines than Crown and Star Resorts combined. They've got 12,000 machines and each of those two companies have got 5,000 each. So even on their way out, they've been lying and spinning (laughs) about the size of their operation. They claimed, for instance, they only have 700 million a year in losses on their 12,000 poker machines. It's actually closer to 1.5 billion. Mm -hmm. It's close to 700 million in Victoria alone. So that's how embarrassed they are. They even lie about the size of their giant gambling uh, operation. Well, I'm interested in our relationship with gambling because Australia wages more and loses more than any country in the world and we have more pokies per head of population than anywhere. How did we end up here? Well, I think it all goes back to New South Wales in 1956. They allowed the rollout of poker machines across that state Uh, and all elements of polite society got dragged into it. So unions own poker machine dens. The Catholic Church still is associated with 10 poker machine dens. All the sporting clubs, the Labor Party owns four pokies dens in Canberra and two in Sydney. The CFMEU has a 300 pokies venue in Canberra. So the the gaming industry was smart. They, they had this dangerous and addictive product and they got all these reputable institutions to operate them and to become dependent on the revenue. And then the hotels got in on the game and then they basically became incredibly powerful. They hired all the politicians, they made all the political donations they needed to, they gamed the research... They did all the usual tobacco industry-style tactics uh, and they had the additional benefit of the state governments becoming addicted to the revenue and the states are now getting about $6 billion a year. Mm. So they're all the reasons why. And also change is hard. Taking something away from someone is always hard and this industry is so terrifying and brutal in, in their tactics. They're like the NRA in, in the US. And so that's it. It's got rolled out. The states got into the revenue and then they created a monster which is too scary and political, politically powerful to take on and that's why we are in this disastrous situation of world record levels of harm all the suicide fraud homelessness etc that flows from 14 billion a year in losses on poker machines across australia well speaking of that you touched on the rsl can you go into the friction taking place uh, in regards to poker machines and young members look it's a, it's probably almost the, the most encouraging thing that's happening at the moment is is the group of young veterans in victoria are targeting the victorian rsl which has got 52 pokies dens uh, that drain about 210 million a year from gamblers so they're the second biggest poker machine operator uh by number of machines in the pubs and clubs after Woolworths, which has got 80, 78 venues draining about $650 million. And these younger veterans have basically crunched the numbers and they've worked out that they're not making any money out of it. So 20 RSL pokies dens have closed and been sold off in the last 10 years. The taxes are quite high. Tabcor is paid $30 million a year. The suppliers of the machines make massive margins and the RSL is not very good at running it. I mean, they're basically running a poor hospitality business and all these younger veterans are sitting there going, our guys are committing suicide, all these issues are happening with veteran welfare and you old cronies are too busy running all these pokies dens in joint venture with the state government Mm. to advocate, bring back... Bring back the Bruce Ruxton era of (laughs) table-thumping advocacy for veterans. Mm. Don't be distracted by running 
bad bad pokies dens and they all get fed so there's a million bucks a year gets paid to the committee members of the pokies clubs within the rsl nothing gets paid to the committee members of the 200 branches that don't have pokies so the industry always creates this gravy train this patronage network amongst the the pubs and clubs of people who will protect their interests and the rsl has that and the younger veterans have pointed that out they're not making any money from it you're not even directing the money towards veterans so get out of this industry entirely stop letting veterans blow their veterans compensation payouts on the pokies and a number of veterans have done that Mm. and so it's a very interesting tussle uh, within the RSL and these young veterans, they know how to fight, i tell you that much, mm. and they're, they're very capable. Yeah. I, I reckon they're going to win. And uh, you've called for a one-off Royal Commission into the gambling industry. What do you suspect that might uncover regarding poker machines? Well, I think, well, it would it would uncover, uncover the enormous, uh, massive social damage. So, you know, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, but more than 10% of homelessness, there's, a, there's an element of gambling addiction. Uh, the female prison population, uh, it's in the north of 20%. There's a gambling issue in there. So, one, it would uncover the huge social harm. Um, two, it would uh, uncover the brutal tactics of the industry, you know, the, t- the tobacco-style tactics of the industry. Three, it would look at all the political donations and the, the gaming of the research. I mean, University of Sydney in particular, you know, in my view... Um, has been compromised by receiving millions of dollars from the gambling industry for um, research and just very poor and weak regulation. I mean, today we've got this whole report out about APRA and weak regulation Mm. of the banks. I mean, I'd just love to see what uh, a Royal Commission would say about regulation of Australia's... You know, the fact that the Labor Party is a regulator of poker machines and runs the poker (laughs) stands themselves... You know, I mean, the conflicts of interest in this industry are huge. The kickbacks, the donations, the hiring of Stephen Conroy and Helen Kernan and Mark Arbib and Carl Bata, the endless amount of politicians who get on the payroll of the industry and the millions that they donate, all of that would be laid bare. Uh, and then I think you would just get a, you'd get a buyback. You would get a gun-style, water-style, federally-funded buyback to go from having... 200,000 poker machines in 5,000 pokies dens across the country to ideally wind it back to a few casinos and a few regional centres. There probably should be maybe a couple of hundred pokies venues in Australia, which would be normal by world standards. So you need a, anything, any reform costs money, so you do need to compensate losers. Mm-hmm. But th- So the feds need to step up and deal with the conflict of interest of the state governments being regulator and dependent on the revenue. Are, there some, are you able to talk about who's most susceptible to pokies gambling? Because uh, I read a piece recently that could kind of identify areas in Australia, suburbs that were more susceptible and why? Um, yeah, so the higher the level of disadvantage and stress within a community, the higher the losses. And that goes down to um, uh, people uh, getting into the zone and managing the stresses in their lives. So you hear this endless times about people who are suffering a failing business or a marriage breakdown or, or some traumatic event in their life and the poker machines are deliberately designed to trigger the pleasure centres of the brain to soothe. And so people value time on machine, time on device, as the industry calls it. And that's why they like to stay open 20 hours a day because people like to be there for many hours to escape. So that is why in, in Burundara, you know, you only see losses of... 20 million a year, whereas in Brimbank or City of Dandenong, you see losses of 140 mm. million a year. And this is where the Labor Party is remarkably uh, just uh, callous, in my view, is that they allow their people in their seats the battlers who they should be looking after, they are preying on them in what is really is a form of state-sponsored abuse to deliberately place highly addictive machines controlled by these multinational gambling companies which with all the research you can imagine putting them in the most vulnerable suburbs with all the research we know and then fleecing them dry and Mm. and they lose their homes they finish up in the prison system i mean there's endless stories you see through the justice system of fraud and 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 theft driven by people uh feeding a gambling addiction that I, i i find the labor party's um complicity in this to, to, to be just morally bankrupt and um and you know the greens have a great 
principal position. They're dead against them. They're really, really against them in a, in a strong way. And uh, that's the honest truth is that uh, they prey on vulnerable people. That's well, what they're designed to do. Your former boss, uh, Jeff Kennett, and the former Labor Premier, Joan Kerner, who were responsible for the rollout of pokey machines across uh, Victoria, later said that they, you know, they regretted it. They should have restricted the machines to Crown Casino only. Does that, I know... the the horse is well and truly bolted by that point, but does does that all go well for any bipartisanship? Look, there's many former premiers who come out after the event and express their regret about this. I mean, Wayne Goss, the former Queensland premier, said it was his greatest regret rolling out uh, poker machines, and he said they are a scourge, they are a plague on, on society. Jeff Kennett, I don't think, has wound it back that much. In fact, he's the majority shareholder in a company which services poker machines, and he has a big contract with Crown servicing uh, their poker machine. So I don't think he really regrets it. He's actually now part of the industry, and he's the president of Hawthorne Footy Club, which has the highest pokies losses of any AFL club at $24 million a year. So I still regard him as being um, one of the 10 sort of biggest political backers of the gambling industry in Australia and his lack of regret. He talks about winding back sports gambling, but his lack of regret and his lack of action, even on Hawthorne divesting pokies, and then his remarkable schutzpah in entering the industry that he helped create and profiting from contracts servicing Crown and other big pokies operators, um, I just I just don't respect it. And um, I always enjoy giving him a, 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 good, a good... A good, really? a good, a good work over at, at his AGMs and anywhere else I can find him. And on Twitter. Yeah, happy to hear <laughs> Well, uh, Stephen Main, uh, Walkley winner, Crikey founder, shareholder, activist, thank you so much for uh, coming in. Thank you for taking an interest. It's a really important issue and uh, we need to talk about it because the way they prosper is by trying not to talk about it and keeping this as a hidden epidemic and we need to flush it out and uh, get the politicians to do something about it. Cool. Three, triple, ah. July 20 marks the 50th anniversary of the first time humans walked on the moon and this feat of ambition and ingenuity is being celebrated at ScienceWorks on Saturday in a special event featuring our next guest. Dr Gail Isles is a former astronaut trainer, program coordinator for RMIT's new Bachelor of Space Science and a member of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and she joins us now. Dr Gail Isles, welcome, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning, everyone. It's fantastic to be here. It's so nice to have you. You're definitely the smartest person in the room. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> um, the more that you've learned about space flight over the course of your career, what are some aspects of the Apollo 11 mission that you remain awed by? It's such an, an, a feat of engineering to, to send people to another planetary body. It's 400,000 kilometres away. And... The f- just the f- amount of fuel that's needed and it's so explosive and you, you have to have it in all these separate co- compartments and you need to use some of it to get off the Earth and then you need to get some of it to get into orbit around the moon. Then you need to land on the moon and not die and crash horribly and then you've got to take off the moon again and then get back. It's, it's just, there's so many steps, there's so many things that could go wrong and yet they did it. Mm. And the computing power, I mean, we're sitting in this fancy studio at the moment. There's loads of computers. and No one ever is referred to this studio as fancy, (laughs) but thank (laughs) you. There you go, Geraldine. First for everything. And um, they got to the moon with the computing power of the equivalent of a a calculator from today. Hmm. And you think, how? How is that even possible? It's just incredible. You talked about the fuel and and how much is required. And I hadn't even thought of that, you know, the fact that I you can't drive to Sydney without filling up. But what what other things that do we just not think about in terms of, you know, what they had to do to get there? Well, the the question that children love to ask is is about how to go to the toilet in space. And with the Apollo mission, you know, we can talk about poo if you like. Mm. Okay. Um, Sarah, how do you feel? Two about questions that? in. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so they they travelled there for two days. Now. On the space station, there's all kinds of machines and, and devices to turn that kind of stuff around, and you, a lot of it's chucked out the door. <laughs> but on the moon, you know, they landed, they were there for 20 hours, then they slept a little bit. You know, there's a full body cycle in that time frame. 
what are is they going to do? So they, they put it in bags and they chucked it on the surface right. of oh, the moon. Up there with the golf really? balls. There's poos it's on the moon. <laughs> There's poos on the moon. There's oh moon poo. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, it's not a something I've ever thought about. <laughs> until now my brain is going. I was also reading, too, that, that once they'd landed, there was no guarantee that they were going to be able to take off again. In fact, they were so unsure that they were going to be able to get off the moon that Reagan had a speech prepared that talked about, hey, we've lost our, that the, the, the astronauts are now resting in peace on the moon. Yep. Uh, would, that, would something like that happen today? Would there ever be in a position again where someone would be launched into space without knowing fully that they have the capability to come back? Yes, um, it's the case with every mission. So every, anytime there's astronauts sitting on the pad, you know, sitting on this the rocket that's about to, they're going to set fire to a huge explosive, there's every chance that it could explode and we lose all of them every time there's a launch. And it happens very often, it has happened often in Russia and China. They, they don't tend to publish their results as much as the Americans and the Europeans do. But um, in every case, there's always speeches prepared. Really? Yes, so there's um, family members are prepared. They're kind of counselled beforehand as you know to prepare them for what might happen and what will happen what the steps will be that'll be taken you know that they'll be kind of shepherded off and hidden away uh they'll the counselors and psychologists will come in straight away um there's going to be other astronauts will come in to to kind of take over the logistics there's a whole Mm. operation around something that might never happen it's pretty interesting also because, yeah, with Nixon's uh, eulogy that these... Oh, was it Nixon? Sorry, yeah, did I say Reagan? That's oh, right. Sorry. The, the, well, 20, like 10 years too late. They, they, they come back and you can you can hear a president's eulogy for you while you're still alive. Um, this event 50 years ago, how did it alter the course of your life? So I was, I was not quite born at that point. I was born in 74, so I missed all of the Apollo landings and uh, wasn't really involved with it. But obviously, as I went through life, I began to encounter people who had experienced it and they all had the same kind of reaction. They were all completely awestruck still. As soon as they started talking about or relating watching that landing on their little kind of rubbish black and white kind of t- tiny TV with 26 people uh, crowded around it, they would just start getting so emotional. Hmm. And it didn't matter uh, what, what their nationality was, what their race was, how old they were. It was, it had the same reaction in everyone. It just was such a huge thing. And that kind of, that human aspect to it, Because I mean, I always wanted to go into space. I was just fascinated with space and being an astronaut and doing crazy things and but it was the reaction of these people added this whole new element it it really impressed upon me the power that space has to inspire it's it's phenomenal you i mean you you trained <clears throat> or you went through a process to to try and be an astronaut who flew into space <laughs> what what is that process like what kind of tests are you doing because you got down to the last 200 is that right of people chosen to go to space what kind of things they're looking for beyond having the skills i mean you're a physicist and you know what you're doing i assume <laughs> what else are they looking for um on, i think more than anything they're looking for balanced people emotionally stable people so the age range that you could apply for was between the ages of 27 and 37 so that's maybe a bit older than people think astronauts are Um, and then you enter a period of say five to ten years of training so you might not be flying till your 40s or 50s and that's that's the age they want people to be at because by then you've kind of got over all the rock and roll and the drinking and all that kind of nonsense and you've you've Kind of you leveled. committed, you know who you are. Yeah, exactly. You've, you've done all the soul searching and you're a bit more stable. Um, another thing that people think you've got to be mega, mega fit, but uh, one of the people who was applying was an Olympic athlete you know, who was a British athlete and I, I got further than he did. Yes. So, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so being, you know, being mega fit isn't, isn't you know, the be-all and end-all, but um, good spatial awareness is is a good skill uh, so we did lots of pilot tests and oh, flying right. things um, being able to adapt to situations so being put in 
a scenario or a situation that you've not encountered before and then seeing how you react to that and seeing, you know, that you don't kind of go, oh, that's all new, I've got no idea what to do. Abort! Yeah. <laughs> you know, they want you to be, oh, OK, let's think about this logically. Well, I'm going to do this, this and this. Ah. Can you tell us about the, is it the no space Airbus A300? Oh, yes, the, um, so... The Vomit Comet? The Vomit Comet. Is that what it's known as? That's its nickname. So the, uh, there are a number of planes around the world where you can experience the feeling of weightlessness. And the French is, is the one in Europe, and they, fly, they have an A300, this Airbus. And um, you go inside, and the aeroplane flies what's called a parabolic manoeuvre. I'm going to show you in the studio. It does that. Oh, Wait. yeah. So it's like an arc shape. And as you go over the top of that arc, a bit like a roller coaster, you get that weightless sensation, but it lasts for 22 seconds. Oh, wow. And it's really cool. It's really cool. But because you've got the plane doing this, if you look out the window and see the horizon doing, oh, <laughs> going up and down, down all the time, people get a bit seasick. So just don't, don't look outside. Don't look out the window. Top tip. And what? How much do you love roller coasters? Oh, I can't get enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll have to talk more about that later, I think. What about, what about the, the fact... So you know how to dock on the onto the International Space Station using a simulator. Yes. Um, are you a good driver? Yes. Yeah, right. I've done a bit of rallying, so... Have you really? <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, my God, you're the best person in the world. <laughs> and how good are you at backing in a, with the trailer? You'd be very good at that. I can do the trailer. What? What? I, my ultimate okay, goal, <laughs> and this this I can't do, so I need, a bit, need to oh, practice okay. this one, is you know when you... You do a handbrake turn and do a do a one eighty degree turn oh, to yeah. park the car. Yes, that's what I would love to be able to do. I can't do that. <laughs> oh yeah, you can park a spaceship, but you know, <laughs> yeah. we'll get oh a simulator going for that. When you're when you're in the process of training astronauts, what do you think is the most common? Um, I don't know, fear or or the thing that they are the most apprehensive about. Not having enough information. Yeah, right. I think you'd be many people would be surprised at how um, kind of unambiguous and literal all the instructions are that they're given to to complete tasks. So it's literally step by step. So imagine you go and make uh, a cup of tea, and you would you would fill up the kettle with water and then put it on the the stand and turn it on, and then yeah. there would be a verify step. Verify kettle is on. Oh. Remove mug from cupboard put mug on bench put tea bag in mug you know there's these steps one by one by one and they have to verify every fifth step oh that's intense and so in theory they would you could send them up with no training whatsoever and if they just followed these procedures everything would be fine but they they go through these procedures over and over and over again so they get it step by step and uh, i think if they were not to have any of that, that would be the time that they would feel at, m- at most, with the most unease. Mm. Um, mm. It has been 50 years since we landed on the moon and my mum always said that she was going to get me a ticket to the moon on my 21st birthday, Excellent. which was um, 20, uh, 19 years mm. ago. Uh, so where, where are we heading at the moment in terms of space exploration and whatnot? It's very exciting. Is it? Yes. It's 50 years since we landed on the moon. Uh, there were then a couple more missions. That was, six, that was 1969. Then there were a few more, and then they stopped in 1972, and that was the last time they were on the moon. And people say, oh, well, of course it was fake. Otherwise, we would have been back every year, you know, for a holiday. But... Uh, it turns out that there's loads of technical challenges. So the moon is covered in this really fine layer of dust, which just gets everywhere. And poo, evidently. And, yeah. well, and bags of poo, <laughs> another hazard, yes, that we weren't expecting. And um, they've been trying to solve this problem. Anyway, they've, they, they think they've reached a point now where they can head back without those technological challenges. And we've also since then found water on the moon. So there's water trapped in ice underground in the poles. So all of the previous landings were all on the equator. This time they're going to land at the poles and they're going to try and get some of these ice crystals and Um. ice soil to see if they can extract the water. And, and this is the really exciting part, in 2024, when we land people again, 
there will be a woman in that crew. Wow. Uh-huh. Has there never so, been a woman on the moon before? Nope. It's going to be the first woman on the moon in 2024. Do we know who that is yet? Or that no. Oh. no. No. We Waiting for a know. tap on the shoulder. <laughs> we yeah. don't know. And um, just quickly, uh, tell us about the, this special event at ScienceWorks on Saturday in which you'll be appearing. At ScienceWorks, we're going to be holding a panel. Robin Williams, who you you probably know from ABC and other other such things, he's going to be the MC. And then there'll be three of us on the panel. It'll be myself. There's Alan Duffy, who is um, uh, often on the ABC himself. And Megan Clark will be there, who is the head of the Australian Space Agency. Cool. Oh, cool. Yes. And there's also planetarium shows, virtual reality experiences, uh, photography exhibition, telescope viewing. That's right. We've got it all. There's several planetarium showing so if you can't make one there'll just be another one the next hour and with the virtual reality that's actually you can experience through a headset there's no charge for this you will put on the headset and then you'll be on the international space station and then you'll exit through a hatch and you'll go and do a spacewalk it is so cool (laughs) i know the people who made that program and they they worked with nasa so it's very very high fidelity it it's really realistic all right well like physicist christmas (laughs) (laughs) Footsteps on the Moon, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, takes place at ScienceWorks in Spotswood this Saturday at 6pm. Go to uh, the Museum's Victoria website for more info. Dr Gail Isles, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Good luck and Godspeed at the anniversary. (laughs) And uh, thanks for coming by. Thanks all so much. This was a blast. Three. Triple. Our next guest's dad famously wrote a porno and the reading of its chapters spawned an award-winning number one podcast with over 180 million downloads, an HBO comedy special and a sellout world tour. Now, My Dad Wrote a Porno returns with a brand new live show and a tour of Australia and New Zealand in 2020. And to tell us all about it, we're joined by its creator and presumably a very proud son, Jim Morton. <laughs> Jim, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, hi. That, that feels so, so strange, you reading all those things out. It's bizarre. Still feels strange. Yeah, I mean, it's borderline impressive. Well, it like, really I feel, is. I feel I'm, I'm, I'm worthy of it. It's horrific. I think we're allowed to call it impressive. <laughs> yeah, at this stage. because you've got Thanks. shows lined up for London Palladium, the Sydney Opera House, Radio City Music Hall. Yeah. So it still doesn't all make sense. You, no, you're basking in the absurdity. It's just well, considering it came from such a ridiculous kind of. I mean, my dad was writing pornography in the garden shed. How are we at Radio City Music Hall? I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, yeah, to, if someone had said to me from the, at the beginning that, yeah, we'd, I'd, be, I'd be sat here talking to you, it's just very strange. But it's great, you know, the world's full of perverts, clearly. So. And do you, what, do you, what do you think of his progression as a writer? Um, I think he needs to really work harder uh, to, to you know, learn how to spell and you know, work out what makes people... Horny, because he has no concept of that. Although, not to not to shame his uh, what, what what maybe he finds uh, attractive in mm. <laughs> in a sexual context, but yeah, no, he needs he needs to work hard. Your, your dad has been he, so he's had to keep writing while you keep doing your mm. show. Has he? How has his relationship with his writing changed? Do you think he's a bit more self conscious now, knowing that? where it's going to end up? I don't think so. Well, he actually wrote four before we started doing the podcast, which was quite lucky. But the fifth season that's coming out in September, that's the first time that he's written it it, since it's been a thing. So I cannot wait to see what he thinks people like about his writing, because I can guarantee you he has no clue. (laughs) So it's going to be... I mean, I'm sure it's going to be as crazy as ever, but maybe with with, with a few knowing kind of little references that he thinks will be funny and they'll be the things that we'll be like, oh, shut up, Dad. <laughs> but they'll still be all the crazy stuff that he doesn't really get. Can you talk to us about the moment that you thought that you'd make this into a podcast? Yeah, I mean, well, it was actually... When when he sent it to me, which is weird that your dad sends yes. you his own erotica... Um, Thank you and, for uh, acknowledging that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not normal, OK? Jeez. Um, yeah, and I kind of read it and just was horrified obviously but also it was so funny so I immediately took it to the pub to read to my mates and and it was really Alice and James who just became obsessed with it and kept asking me to read it in every social situation so we we thought we have to do something with it and mm. a podcast felt like the most responsible way to tell a story about porn I mean you, you wouldn't want to put that on YouTube or, <laughs> or something has, <laughs> has he ever sat in incognito in a live show Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He he uh, comes to quite a, a lot of them actually. 
Um, we'll never say which ones. <laughs> Although you will, see, if, if, if there's a man in a massively loud Hawaiian shirt, um, that'll be my dad. <laughs> <laughs> when he did like this to go, but when he did first, I know you've probably talked about this quite a lot, but I'm fascinated. When he did first send you this book, mm. or the original book, was he looking for fe- specifically for feedback, or and what did you what feedback did you initially send him before you, you took it to your mates at the pub? <laughs> um, zero. Okay. Um, I I don't know why he, I I honestly think and this is why I feel not too bad about doing what we do with the show mm. I think he sent it to me to completely play with my head because really? he's such a wind up merchant I think he was deliberately trying to just you know rile me and freak me out which you know he succeeded but I feel like I've kind of one upped him now and yeah. uh, kind of played him his own game although now with people like Emma Thompson calling him a genius it's kind of the tables are turned again <laughs> and I'm like oh, damn well, when you talk about your dad and his writing, you, you strike this really nice balance between acknowledging how hilarious it is, but also n- not being mean about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love my dad, and uh, as much as it's ridiculous, we do it with warmth because nothing's yeah. funny when it's mean. Mean. I don't think you yeah. want to kind of have a good, like you say, a balance. Um, and I think because my um, Alice and James, my friends, they've known him for years. There's such kind of affection for Dad, and and the, and the fact that he's completely on board with the whole concept. If we were doing it behind his back, or and he didn't the, know, yeah, yeah, then that would be really cruel. And, and and people say a lot, oh, you should read other people's stuff. And it's like, well, no, you have to. Like we we do this because he's given his permission for us to do it. Like it would be it would be it would be, it would be cruel to just read random people's stuff. So that was quite important at, at, the, at the beginning yeah. to kind of get that tone right. I think you mentioned Emma Thompson. Are there, are there any mm. other kind of jaw dropping? Uh, celebrity fans or... How can or, you top Emma Thompson? Or, or, no, or <laughs> Dame Emma Thompson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Have some respect. Uh, yeah, I know I know that even the introduction to this interview was a pinch me, but is there... What What are some other pinch me... A lot, pinch me since 2015, oh, since it started? Um, yeah, just, I mean, well, it's, it's interesting just, just the, the, the people that come out of the woodwork, like... Um, Lynn Manuel Miranda, who created Hamilton, he outed himself recently as a as a <gasps> Belinka, which is pretty cool. Um, and yeah, just I mean, they're just the the mixture of people who are yeah fans like George Ezra and Elijah Wood and Daisy Ridley was listening to it on the set of Star Wars and oh my god, talking to Harrison Ford about it. You're like, this is so bizarre, um, but really fun. And they're all just so nice. That's the other thing. Everyone's just so nice. Mm. People come to your life shows dressed up as they do. different characters. It's a lot of cosplay. What's it's been... worrying. It's, it's, it's... Cosplay is worrying. Yeah. What's been the most kind of confronting f- fan moment for you? Someone was dressed as a full-on cervix once, which was interesting. No. Yeah. Uh, that was... Tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of pink. A lot of pink and a lot of fabric. It's flowing a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, people are, people are so <laughs> so creative with it. Um, yeah, I mean, someone came as a massive penis, just dressed as a massive... I mean, <gasps> people get into it. But then there are also people who are really oddly... that go really niche... So some there's a in 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 the first book the main character is um handcuffed to a trellis in a medium sized maze. And one person <laughs> came to the show as her and then handcuffed herself to her friend who was dressed as the trellis. Oh. Who was just <laughs> destroying everybody around her with loads of like wood in their faces. Amazing. And then somebody else was a group of friends around them dressed in, in green and they were the maze. The maze. Oh, that is extraordinary. It's pretty cool. Um, and so, yeah. so what about when, High H- when, <laughs> when HBO calls and uh, and you know you you go on TV and have a comedy special about it, and then you, that brings in new fans. Yeah, and you like oh bugger off, you're flying. Like uh, <laughs> give me the service <laughs> costume. Yeah, diehards. We want the diehards. No, it's, it, it's been really nice actually because we we kind of forget that podcasting is still quite a, a new like niche medium. Mm. So it's been great to kind of have it on. Like, I mean, on HBO, I mean, what a joke. Yeah. HBO put, I mean, I mean, Game of Thrones got quite a lot of porn in it, let's be honest. But, like, <laughs> an actual porn show, a live sex show on HBO. We're quite proud of that. Mm. Um, but it's been great, yeah, to have people come come to the show fresh from that and then go back to the podcast and kind of discover it the other way around, which has been interesting. Um, but it's great, yeah. And do you get an appreciation doing a live show about what people uh, respond to in a surprising way? Yeah, it's nice to kind of see what they enjoy and what they kind of couldn't care less about. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are bits that the three of us find really funny and then everyone in the audience is like, 
next. No. <laughs> Good to know. That bit just gets skimmed over in the podcast, clearly. Um, yeah, it's always quite interesting, but it's, it's, I mean, our live shows are just the most fun. Everyone's got a drink. We play a drinking game. Uh, it's great. Where do you see podcasts heading in the future? I mean, you know, you've created this, you know, number one podcast and it's quite unique. Mm. Uh, yeah, where do you where do you see podcasts? You know, in terms of, you know, you go on and you have this HBO special and, and stuff like that. Like, what do you see as better? Would you see podcasts taking over, like, in terms of entertainment? Um, I hope so, actually. Because I, I, I think they're a really interesting and really intimate medium they're not kind of like anything really mm. it is very um it is just quite unique having these people in your ears that you really get to know and they kind of become your friends over time um so your relationship with your listeners is really intimate and and kind of amazing actually and, and so I, I i hope that it can find its own path within tv and radio and movies and all the other things that we've got constantly mm. kind of vying for our attention but i you know the fact that they are growing as a as a platform is a really good thing and i hope that they kind of begin to get the recognition that they deserve mm. as, as, as their own medium i do wonder if there'll be a post true crime podcast world day if there'll be a genre that is as popular as true crime mm. so much true crime it's so there? much true so crime. much i know and more porn yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you have a, um, a, a an insight for for your podcast or do you think that your dad as long as your dad keeps writing you're going to keep doing this well we always have the thing of you know we'll keep doing it for as long as we have fun doing it yeah and, and what's nice about it is because it's such a lo-fi operation it's it, we're, we're only doing it because of us there's no you know bigger mm. kind of you know company around us that need us to keep making it it's, do you it's still purely... record it in the kitchen yeah that's great mm. i love that yeah you can't drink in a recording booth. Come on. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, we we all just say we'll 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 keep doing it for as long as we love it, and then once we kind of think, oh, we've kind of told this story now, we'll go and do something else mm. or whatever. Or maybe so. when your dad's creative juices dry up, that'll <laughs> never. <Yeah. laughs> Maybe you've got an auntie or an uncle lying around. I love that he calls it creative juices. (laughs) I know. That's revolting. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, tickets for the live tour of My Dad Wrote a Porn are on sale now through Live Nation. Uh, You're playing around Australia and Melbourne at the Palais on Wednesday, January 15. Season five of the podcast is released in September. And uh, we've been speaking with creator Jim Morton. Jim, thank you so much for uh, coming in. Good luck with all your erotic endeavours. Thank you so much. (laughs) Appreciate it. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Uh, None of us are parents and, you know, there's certain things that we miss out on in, you know, not not being parents. Um, One thing in particular is um, when children become teenagers, young adults, and um, might want to go out and have... Do some underage drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Uh, this is where we're going. Okay. Yeah. Um, So I was chatting to um, someone the other day who has um, is a teenagers, and um, they're at that age of you know just underage drinking. You know, giving it a go. They said that um, they one of them went to the. went to the movies and my brother did this as well like for his birthday like it was his 13th or 14th birthday went to the movies and um came home was very ill like got i think got kicked out of the cinema for throwing up right contaminated popcorn or something it was (laughs) i think it was discovered that there was i think my brother drank wine (laughs) they filled up a um like a large cup of coke that's a with, classic that is a classic it? underage mo- drinking move and isn't isn't it? Straw, oh, yeah the, yeah wine to a straw it is a classic so i was just trying to think of the classic kind of you know things that you do when you're underage and you you know but going to the movies is one um and this is what you know my mate that was telling me they um their son had um gone to the movies uh and with the mate, but uh, had taken in a, a bottle of whiskey, like had asked, you know, someone on the street to buy them a bottle of whiskey and drank, and was just so violently ill afterwards because oh. they drank so much. Um, uh, and she was like, whiskey? Like, why? Why whiskey? Like, why don't you just get beers? 
And he was like, oh, no, you just said it was your favourite drink. Oh, so. that's why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's so – and, you know, when I worked in, in hospitality, um, there was one, you know, when I was working at, at the casino, because this bar was, you know, also it was a bowling alley, so it was – there was no ID checks at yeah. certain times, like especially during the day. But the bar was open, but it was, you know um, – this license thinks well you didn't have to be you could be underage and be in there um so it was just obviously some teenagers <laughs> thought oh what a great opportunity to yeah see if i could you know get something start some drinking mm. um but you could always tell you know hey you know by looking at them you know we check id anyway did you get any fake ids oh not not Oh, maybe. No. Okay. I didn't check them that okay. <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> but um, not to my knowledge anyway. Um, but there was – I still remember one. God, these two two kids came in and it was like during school hours, you know, it was just, you know, late in the afternoon and I'm like, there's something – and it, just because it took them a while to kind of, you know, there's no one else in there and they're loitering a little bit and then it's almost like you could see them pluck up the courage <clears throat> and go, all right. I'm going to do this. Here we go. Then go out to the bar. And he just went, yeah, g'day. Um, I'll have a Tia Maria, please. <laughs> God. Tia, a Maria. tia Maria. Has anyone ever ordered a Tia Maria at all? Oh, ever? so funny. Oh, oh that is... man, I just oh. went, you tried so hard, mate. I'm so... <laughs> Blew it at last, yeah. hell. Yes. I mean, it was, it was fairly obvious before we got to that point. But the. <laughs> just trying to think just, of any cocktail they could think of, and that was yeah, the one that came Yeah, I'm just thinking, okay, hoops. what, you know, oh, I just would love to know the thought process of, you know, oh, I can't get a beer. It'd be too obvious if I've got, I don't like beer. I don't like yeah, beer. Exactly. Yeah, gonna, yeah, yeah. Oh, I can't have wine. I'm a, I'm a man. I've got to, oh, what can I have? What is, what have we, what have we got at home? Yeah. Oh, Tia Maria. <laughs> Def- it's definitely like the parents' alcohol cabinet. They've seen that bottle and gone, I'm going to remember that. Yes. Oh, it's my so God. Great. Anyway. We were very um, – we were there was a lots of rocket fuel when we underage drank, so you'd mm. have to take the perfect amount of alcohol from your parents' liquor cabinet. Uh, and my friend's parents, who we used to sneak from the most, they love Drambuie, so a lot of <laughs> a lot of Drambuie, yeah. uh, but then mixed with a little bit of gin and a little bit of – Bailey's. It was always this gross concoction. And Midori. Why? Yeah, Midori. Why, why oh. so much Midori, Midori when you're huge, a young adult? Because they yeah. had the Midori illusion shakers. Yeah. That was like just, such a big thing. Because you're building up to it. You're a kid. You don't know what you're doing. You don't yeah. actually like alcohol. No, you don't. You, you no. want a bridge drink. You want something sweet. Yeah. So, yeah, no wonder he blurted out Tia Maria. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you remember the first time you, you know, had too many what did, what was what were you drinking? Do you remember? Ah, uh, yeah. So uh, the first time was my parents had gone away, and me and my best mate snuck alcohol from their cabinet, and it was a combination of gross. We, my parents weren't big drinkers, so the, the alcohol had been sitting there for years. Mm. Uh, it was some kind of combination of whiskey and Scotch whiskey, but really cheap, terrible stuff. Oh, all we had in our house was Johnny Walker and por- Red Label. Oh, and, Yuck! But port. Oh, port. yeah, and sherry. Mm. Port and sherry. So <laughs> yeah. port and sherry. So we drank that. And then I was fine. I, I went home about to take my friend back to her parents' house and she was so violently ill and I had to run her into the bathroom and tell them that we'd got sick of McDonald's <laughs> while she was throwing up in the bath. And I, I blasted all the noises you could put on in the bathroom. So I put on the radio, a hairdryer, the fan. Oh, but can you imagine the parent net, like how obvious it was? So obvious. While well, my friend reached up in the in the bathroom, <laughs> the toilet, and the, and the dad was banging on the door, and I'm like, she's just a little bit ill from the McDonald's, and there's yeah. all these noises coming out. It's so in retrospect, they were clearly laughing at us. Like, mm. yeah. There's oh. also the trying to get home inconspicuously, which you struggle to do when you're underage. I think. Mm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, struggle, yeah. I struggle to do that now, but yeah. it's it, but it's especially. You you know, obvious when the keys are fumbling or you're rooting around the bottom of a flower pot or, you I know. know. right? Um, but, but, you know, with – because I – at a sporting club and uh, I won't say where or what sport, <laughs> but if you if you were a player of the match – you know, if you're good at a sport, you're you're a you might be a junior and you'll be playing seniors. And if the if you're playing seniors and the senior <gasps> team wins, they award player of the match. And if you were player of the match. 
you have to scull that yard glass. <gasps> oh, really? Yeah. No matter what. Well, no, no one. <laughs> did, no, no, did you no have to do it? Will you play with the match? Yeah. Really? Yeah, and you yeah. just, did you, could you scull it in front of everyone? Yeah. Well, it's it's surprising <laughs> what peer pressure will do. <laughs> That's so stressful. Mm. And were you ill afterwards? No, no, no. But I mean, it's it's. I don't. You don't want to glorify this at all. No, 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 but, no. Oh, yeah. It's, to be clear. Not encouraging underage yeah. no, no, whatsoever. No. Um, but but you know people were really excited to see me accomplish it. Oh, that's yeah. messed up, isn't it? Um, someone someone has texted in saying that um, <laughs> they used to um, drink their underage drink was Cinzano, and I what Cinzano dis- distinctly remembered having. <laughs> Ordering Cinzano for someone else. Cinzano. Oh, I don't know. It's just I think you put it in um, like if you're making a martini, you can put a little bit Cinzano. It's yuck. It's like um, I mean, um, who I'm cares? surprised Maybe it's we lovely. ever drink ever again when oh, this yeah. is your experience. Yeah. It's also the buying of underage alcohol makes me laugh because I can still remember being the age that we were and trying to dress my friend up who we thought looked the oldest oh. in a, flat, a floral blouse and giving her car keys. <laughs> And a hat, and she had to go in to buy a ten dollar two litre port bottle. Oh, hello, <laughs> sir. See, I did that. Like for me, I remember trying the first time I tried to buy something and did that a similar thing. Kind of <clears throat> got my game on, and then just walked through the the bottle line, walked through the the drive through bottle shop, and went up to the kind of. Hello. <clears throat> Can I get a bottle of passion pop? <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of the breakfasters from 3 Triple R.